The recordings continue to be a very helpful tool for people. I keep hearing from those who have been listening and, you know, and as usual, the sound of my voice is well known for its curative properties for people with insomnia. It's a gift. It's a spiritual gift. I can cure insomniacs. <laughs> I want you to know there were uh, second uh, uh, session people. You know, there were the, the contemporary people that were laughing at that. <laughs> because you always say that the people that laugh the most, they get your jokes, are the ones that go to the first service. Yeah, maybe it's just the room. <laughs> because I can hear them when they're laughing or giggling or you know, snorting or whatever, but... Yeah, I heard Penny and Linda both laughing. I wanted to make that my slogan, you know. (laughs) Pastor Dan's podcast, curing insomniacs for 15 years now, or since 1998 or whatever. So, anyway. (laughs) Now, you don't want to listen to the one I do with Bethany because her enlightening and, and dulcet tones will keep you alert and, and connected. So so tonight's lesson basically is sort of a uh, little snippet that will probably hit a little harder next week when we have the regular crew around. But um, remember that the goal here is to try to understand the difference between Islam and, and uh, Israel. And, and I restate that each week so that we are well, it's just a good idea to, st- uh, I, I am working with our church leadership in a similar way, saying this is our vision. Let's rate everything we do according to how well it keeps in line with the, the vision. That It's just an easier way to succeed. I, I'm looking forward to having pilots in the aircraft who are committed to getting to Tel Aviv and don't change their minds somewhere along the way. You know, and so it's the same kind of thing. You know, it, it's good when you set out on a, de- on a journey to have your destination in mind and keep it in mind all along. So that's purpose here. First thing we're going to look at is, is some Jewish language, some Hebrew language studies here. The name of Ishmael. Now, first of all, in Hebrew, his name would be pronounced Yishmael, okay? And his name actually has three parts. Uh, first of all, to understand the uh, language of, of Hebrew as a written language, you know that it always goes from right to left. So if you look at the order of these three parts, then it's El, Shema, Iye. And it's not that you say it that way, but those tell you what the word means in that order. So the word El, how many of you know what El means in Hebrew? E-L. I'll bet you do. God. Yeah. God. And then ye, in this case, me, and, and actually the vowels wouldn't be present. So they guess at the sounds of the really old words, but most of the words with the vowels are just known, that, and, but they don't write vowels in Hebrew. But the ye is a word that means will or like will do, okay? So the only word that is unique between Yishmael and Yisrael is the center part, okay? Now, if you remember, the and I forgot to put the Bible reference here, but you might recall that Jacob, who uh, was a son of Isaac, 
right? He wrestled with God one night, Jacob and Esau. Esau was a brat, man. He was really a brat. That's an understatement. And it doesn't get better in the Bible. He stays a brat. Uh, whereas Ishmael is a guy who has a lot of redeeming qualities, even though he's a little rough around the edges. Or you could say he's actually smooth on the outside and rough on the inside. That's kind of a better description of Ishmael. So Jacob, after wrestling with God and getting God's blessing, and if you think about it, he took the blessing from his father, even though he wasn't the firstborn. They were twins, right? And, and, and Esau came out first. So he was actually entitled to the blessing. But the legend in the Bible says that when Jacob came out, he was hanging on to Esau's heel, you know. And then Esau is tricked out of his inheritance by Jacob. Then Jacob later in life wants God's blessing and he wrestles with God. And it's almost like he thought he could pull a stunt with God. And so he sees Jacob's ladder with the angels coming and going and he gets this sort of sense of the whole eternal perspective and, the, and the, the otherworldly nature of heaven and then he wrestles with God somehow or an angel or you know whatever and he ends up wounded in the hip and then God says okay you'll get your blessing and your name is Yisrael. So we now have two nations we have Yishmael and we have Yisrael okay so we already know that Yi means will do and we already know that El is God. So the two names basically are God will do something or something will happen. And so when you look at the name Yishmael, the Shema part refers to God will hear. So you know that because we read that earlier. Hagar was told you're going to name him Yishmael and his name is God will hear. Israel, Yisrael means God will listen to. Or to put it more specifically, he will listen to. I should say that I've got that wrong. Let me rephrase that like I wrote it in my notes. Yisrael means he will listen to God. So one is describing someone that God will listen to, and another one describes someone who listens to God. So the two nations both have been promised that they will be great nations. And one will be known for praying a lot, because they're always talking to God and God's always listening. When we're in Israel, one thing you're going to hear, especially when we're in Jerusalem, is pretty regularly you're going to hear the imam on speakers at some mosque somewhere, you know, calling the people to prayer. Uh, the people of Ishmael pray a lot. They certainly pray a lot more than most of us, at least in an overt, outward way, in a way that can't be mistaken on the airplane to Israel. I've never had a time when this didn't happen. When you are on the flight to Tel Aviv, whether it's a connecting flight or the direct flight from JFK, whatever it turns out to be, there will be Hasidic Jews on that plane. And during that plane ride, they will get up and pray. And they'll get up and, and uh, I remember watching this one guy. Uh, he, he was an older uh, Jew with a long beard and the curls and the hat and all that jazz. And, and of course, they weren't wearing their hats in the airplane, but they still have their uh, yarmulkes on. And he uh, is instructing this younger man how to do it. And uh, I guess this kid's on his first trip to the Holy Land. And, 
And I'm sitting there, you know, watching all this on the plane because there's not much else to do, you know. And, and he's explaining how to put the phylacteries on. Um, and so you may have seen these images and maybe if you're going to Israel, you're going to see them for sure. They put these leather boxes on their foreheads and they have another thing that they put on their arm and there's a strap that goes around to a certain point. And the idea is, is that this thing is on their head. It, has, it actually has scripture in it. And we're going to get to that in a minute. And it has a scripture in the box. And uh, uh, then there's a similar thing on the arm. And one is saying this is for holiness of mind. And this one is holiness of heart because the left arm, it's why the tradition of the wedding ring, it's because even when they didn't know that much about biology, they knew that the heart is closer to the left arm than it is to the right. So we wrap the phylacteries around your arm or put the wedding band on your left finger because it's nearer to the heart. So the idea is that when they pray in this way, they are putting the word of God, hi Julie, on their mind, on their brain and their heart, you know, and that's the idea. And uh, so you'll definitely see a lot of Jewish people praying but the record holders for frequent prayer have to be the Islamic people as far as the frequency and the dedication to facing Mecca, praying regularly, it's a big deal. And so it's interesting because this is a tradition that stems, it seems, from the name, it would hint. And then you have the Israel. The Israel means, this, did we save one of these for, you need this, Julie. I'm gonna pass it down to you because You've got to look at this to, to help you. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I saw you come in, and I didn't make the connection. I, I, well, you all just have to yell at me. It's okay. I know Julie would. She doesn't mind. So, um, so now that you can see the notes, just we're talking about the difference between the name Yishmael and the name Yisrael. And we've come to the conclusion that Yishmael is a name that means God will hear. And Yisrael means he will listen to God. And so what we know about Israel, at least as God has defined it, and it's very important to recognize, God gave them these names. If you look at the Bible, there aren't many times in the Bible, I mean like fewer than five, where God tells them what somebody's name will be, right? Let's think about the ones we can come right off the top of our head. So we know, Jesus. well, yeah, you started with the easy one. <laughs> Go for the low-hanging fruit. I, uh, I'm thinking, well, Abraham, right? His name was Abram. And God said, you're going to be Abraham and Sarai. You're going to be Sarah. And then we have Jacob, had his name changed to Yisrael. Well, we had Ishmael, who, who's Yishmael, who's uh, Hagar was told, that's who he's, this is, you're going to have this baby, and that's going to be his name. Then we do. We have Jesus, huh? Simon. And then Jesus gives Simon Peter his name. Yeah, exactly. So this is a very limited thing. It doesn't happen very much in Scripture. So we have to assume that if God gives somebody a name, there's a divine purpose in it, right? You know, Jesus said to Peter, I'm going to call you Peter because you're going to be the rock upon which the church is built. And he said that specifically to him. And guess what? We're going to the spot. 
I was, I, this was for me because I designed this trip so that I could see some things I hadn't seen before. <laughs> Sorry if I'm a little selfish, but I think you'll enjoy the ride. So I picked this particular thing because I want to be, I want to see Caesarea Philippi, which is the place on, on the mountainside where uh, Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And that's when Jesus says, then your name is now Peter, you're the rock upon which I'm going to build my church. And of course, some traditions have said, therefore, first Pope, and they go that direction with it. Whereas the more logical, in my opinion, interpretation is, is that confession is the, the, the rock of this faith. That it is knowing and understanding that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that is the rock of the church, that the body of Christ, capital C Church, is based on that piece of absolute truth that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. So, so Peter gets his name for being the first guy to publicly state that. And he is important. He is important. There's no question about his significance. And, and I say this about Mary at Christmas time. I don't mind giving Mary her due. She's a remarkable woman. She's remarkable. She's incredible, especially given her youth. But I'm not ready to call her co-redemptrix, you know, and, and declare her equal to Jesus in our redemption. I, I'm sorry, but, but so Peter's a really great guy. But, you know, his name is significant because it's a statement of like it's like driving a stake in the sand or putting a way mark on your map or whatever, saying we have arrived at a point, And from this point forward, this is how we go, you know, and so that's. Getting back to this, so God gave the name Yishmael, and he said, you're going to call him, God will hear. And then he says to Jacob, you're going to be Yisrael, which means he will listen to God. Of course, the funny thing is, Jacob was a bit of a jerk, and he really probably wasn't going to be the one who would fulfill that as well as his descendants, you know. Um, make no mistake about it. <laughs> I think we can assume just because it's fun to think about that he must have had a pretty good conversion experience after wrestling with God because he did decide to quit running away from Esau and make peace with his brother who was committed to killing him. And that's an important thing we're going to hit next week because there is, uh, there is a character, I want to make sure I say his name right, that we're going to meet next week who is uh, Amek. Um, let me see here. Agag, Agag, really that's it, Agag, Agag, that's his name, and he is the king of Amalek, that's what I was trying to get right, he's the king of Amalek, he's a descendant of Esau, who heard dad say a long time ago, grandpa, whatever, you guys are going to make sure that his people pay for what he did to me. And then somehow he never got the word about the, you know, whole making up and everything. <laughs> and so it's going to be down the road. We're going to see these Amalekites the, the, of Amalek. We're going to see these Amalekites not given up on this destruction of the Jews, of the Israel people. So the descendants of Jacob have got this this death mark on them from this particular clan it's not going away so all that hatred between those two groups of people go all the way back to that what you're talking about right there is the basis for all this war and fighting 
Well, you're sort of jumping to the end of the, the class. And, and No, no, no. You know why I'm saying that, Larry? Because I'm really particular. I, my integrity with you is very important to me. And, and, and all things that I do as your pastor, my integrity is so important. I want you to trust not me, but the fact that I put my trust in God. I don't want to mislead you, but that's the conclusion we're aiming at. And I'm going to hopefully build evidentially enough, you know, even if it isn't substantial evidence, there's enough proof that scripture is telling us the story of what we're living with today, right now. It's telling us that as far back as this. Esau was, and, and remember I was telling you, if you want to have some fun, get your big fat Bible dictionary like this one and look up all the names of Esau's descendants. Because every one of the names means something like bad-tempered guy, man with big club, you know, smells bad and eats rocks, you know. I mean, it's just like they, all their names have these really profoundly negative connotations assigned with them. So Esau's clan, they're just, they're just an ordinary bunch. And the Amalekites, we will find out, is where we got Goliath and his four brothers, and that means that the Amalekites are not only rotten, but they also seem to have some blood in them that harkens back to Genesis chapter 6 because they spin off these giants. And they're saying, you know, most people think that, that uh, uh, the giants that the, new, that the Genesis chapter 6 referred to were people that were probably anywhere from 15 to 20 feet tall and proportionately equal. And Goliath was probably small as giants go because he was probably only about 12 or 14 feet tall and proportional, <laughs> and his brothers. So we, we and, and a lot of those uh, uh, people who descended from the, uh, the whole strain that came out of Genesis chapter six, a lot of them, even in anecdotal, modern history there are stories of people who have six-fingered hands and probably descended from that genetic history and all of this is really fascinating and difficult to believe because it's, a lot of it just isn't real common knowledge but you know it's dangerous if you get on youtube and start looking some of this stuff up because there's a lot of claptrap out there but there are some things that you can find that are fairly legit but the whole six-fingered hand thing in a lot of historically unsophisticated cultures, like say the Native American cultures, and I mean they're sophisticated, but not compared to European explorers, that kind of thing, you know what I mean? They didn't use a lot of machinery and didn't build factories and things like that, but so they're fairly, they're fairly uh, agronomy-based economies and, and societies, and, and like you get the Incas and people like that, and they all have these traditions of you and I can exist in the same space comfortably as long as you show me your hands. They all have this tradition. Remember in the old westerns? Remember, remember Clayton Moore and Jay Silverheels in, in the Lone, Lone Ranger? I loved those shows when I was a kid. And, you know, ow. And they might as well have said, ow, many fingers do you have? Because that was basically what they were looking at in the tradition. And if the guy held up his hand and there were five, like, yeah, come on in. You know, we're good. So there's a real fear associated with these 
strange persons. So all of this is tied together in scripture, even though it's not a part of scripture that we spend a lot of time looking at. And I probably wouldn't preach it on a Sunday morning either. Um, if God commands me to, I will, but there's, God seems to say, you know, let's focus on Christ on Sunday morning because Christ crucified was important to Paul. It should probably be important to you, Dan, you know, and Christ is the king of everything. That's the message. So that's what I focus on on Sunday morning because that's what everybody needs to hear. And that's what worship is all about, his worth, celebrating his glory. So that's what we do on Sunday morning. But when we can talk about this stuff on Wednesday night, we can have some fun looking at some really wild stuff that's in Scripture. And so here's uh, Genesis 25, verse 18. I have it in your notes. You can look it up if you'd like. But it says in Genesis 25, 18, and some of your translations, it might be interesting to see whether yours reads a little differently. But in the ESV, which is the one we have in our pews and on the tables, it says, they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. And in my footnotes, which I included here, it says that settled could also be fell. Well, it just so happens Rabbi Lappin in his word study says the word is fell. And he spends a lot more time explaining this than I'm going to, but here's what's really interesting. This sentence is referring to the descendants of Ishmael, right? They are, it's, it's referring to the descendants of Ishmael. And this is a passage, if you look at it in your Bible, it's right around the time Ishmael dies, okay? And it talks about their group settling, and it says they settled across this area, which, by the way, is still populated by the same basic people groups, okay, basically. And, you know, there's been all kinds of European invasions. I mean, you know, the British were there, the French were there. Everybody's taking a turn trying to run that area. And before that, in Old Testament times, there's Assyrians and Babylonians and all this. But the basic native people are these people. And here's what the Bible says about them. They settled there, and then it says he, and you have to take that word fell. And in the, in the Hebrew, it's one of those words that always has to, you know how in some languages you have a feminine version and you have a, a, male, a masculine version, you have feminine, masculine versions of words in, in a lot of languages. This is one of those where they gotta go together to make sense. And what it's saying is, is that each of the tribes, by the way, how many sons did Yishmael have? 12. How many sons did Jacob have? Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? That's why comparing their names is really fascinating because it tells you how they diverge from there. But here's what's interesting about this statement is it's saying that each of them was over and against his kinsmen. So they collectively, the Ishmaelites, moved to this area, populated this area, excuse me, and then each of them was against his kinsmen. So they're always fighting with each other. Interesting. And the only thing that brings them together is when they have a common enemy, someone they'd like to hate more than each other. Isn't that interesting? 
if and and here's so you this is why I was saying Larry I want to get there carefully and methodically because I don't want it to sound like I'm jumping to these conclusions but let me ask it this way if the bible if, we, if you know I everything I do in in my ministry life in my own personal spiritual journey is based on the assumption that the bible is trustworthy and true I mean if you don't believe the bible then I can't I can't tell you anything from you know because I believe it and I trust it so in my understanding of the Bible being, you know, a, a, a message that was divinely transmitted from wherever God is to wherever we are, and that bad versions have a way of going away and the good versions seem to stick around and somehow we get God's word despite all of the efforts of Satan to distort it. All that being said, God has communicated in Genesis, first book of the Bible, He's communicated that there are two kinds of people groups emerging from this drama. And one of them is always at each other's throats, unless they're united against someone else. And then you look at our times and you ask yourself, when in human history have there been other people groups, even now, who behave this way? And we can at least say, well, gosh, it sounds like Genesis is describing the same people. I didn't prove it, but anecdotally speaking, it's pretty hard to refute that they, they're still in existence there. You know, um, here's the thing I always love. I, I heard a rabbi, other than Rabbi Lappin, say this. This guy was one of my uh, uh, videos I had to watch when I was in seminary, and this guy says, you know what Israel means, don't you? It means the people who wrestle with God. I mean, when, when Jacob wrestled with God, he got this name Israel. They're the people who wrestle with God. And that is another way that you can interpret Yisrael people who wrestle with God. And that's why even in culture, the culturally Jewish population, the, you know, the comedians and the actors who say they're Jewish, but they obviously you know, don't, profess, don't live the faith they profess. And we know a lot of Christians like that too. But culturally, if you ask a Jewish person, and I don't mean this literally, but you know, if you ask a Jewish person what time it is, the first thing you're gonna get is an argument. What, are you in a hurry? No, I just want to know what time it is. Does my watch look like the only watch in this room? You going to tell me what time it is or not? I mean, exactly. And, and what I've learned over the years, because I've had a lot of Jewish friends and associations, and I've just learned that it's all sort of a cult, it's a game. If you persevere long enough, they love you, and then you're best friends for life, you know, but you have to persevere long enough. And, and it's just the nature of the thing, you know? Uh, if, if you decide to ask somebody for directions and they speak English over there, you know, they're just liable to say, what are you, lost? <laughs> no, I just want to know how to get from here to there. You're an American, aren't you? <laughs> I mean, yes, I'm an American. How do you get there? Uh, oy vey, you people. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually, if you wait, you'll get your answer. It'll come. People who wrestle with God, they just like wrestling with everybody, apparently. So it's interesting because these people groups have certain qualifications. And, and with all love and respect for the Jewish people of the world, I'm not saying that everybody's the same or anything like that anymore. I would say that every Ishmaelite or Islam or Arab person, they're not all the same. Nobody can say that. But we do know that there are people groups that have certain customs and traits and, tra and traditions that are just part of being who they are. And it just, it is that way. And, 
and they're just variations of that. So this is very interesting because their quality, their quality that God has, has noted in Scripture is that if they weren't fighting with Israel or somebody else, they'd be fighting with each other. They're not going to stop fighting. It's just in their sort of DNA. Is that, is that maybe I'm jumping it in, but is that like the, uh, the Sunnis and the Shiites? Exactly. Yeah, the Sunnis and the Shiites, would, they would be going at each other if they didn't have a common enemy. And, and that's an interesting thing because, it's, again, it's getting ahead. It's actually in, in, if I get up the nerve and we do the other thing I picked up last spring, which is this Khalil Salim stuff that I picked up, if we do that and you guys are really thick-skinned and I'm really stupid, we'll go through that study too because he's going to tell you some things about Islam that will blow your mind. And... The reason I like Rabbi Lappin is he was the only person who could write a book on why Jewish people seem to do so well with money because he was an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. Who else is going to write a book like that and not be condemned as some kind of anti-Semite, right? Khalil Salim is a guy who can speak to Islam in a way that I can't with any authority because I would be just dismissed as somebody who hates Islam or something like that. But but yeah, there's all kinds of evidence that if they, if the plan, and particularly um, the the Shiites are the more violent of the two sects, and if the Shiites get their way, there would be a Islamic worldwide kingdom. So presumably, if they get rid of all the infidels and make everyone else convert, then they'll just start fighting with each other, starting with those stupid uh, Sunnis who didn't understand a long time ago that this is what Muhammad meant, not that. You know, and, and that's, well, in my opinion, evil. But we'll see. But to, to that point, when people say pray for peace in the Middle East, I think to myself, can it happen? Because it's, it's just going to be there until he comes again. So isn't that... Yeah. I'm going to pray for people that I think will make peace. I know they say no, it's peace, true. but it's really not going to happen. And, and I don't think believing that the Bible, even in its more dark sections, like in the places in Daniel and Revelation where it describes the coming conflict, the Bible is hopeful. It's very optimistic. It's very, you know, it's almost like we miss the fact that God's not telling you all this so you've got more details to fret over. He's telling you this so you can relax when you see it coming. Prophecy in the Bible is always meant to communicate something that you should look for to indicate to you that this is on the level, that this is what, you know, how do you know he's the son of God? Because he'll heal the sick, raise the dead, give sight to the blind. He'll be born under a star. He'll be born in Bethlehem. It tells us all of this so that we know that's the real thing. So when we're watching our times unfold and we see Bible scripture or Bible prophecy unfolding before us, it's so easy to get caught up in that and get all desperate and scared about it all. But what we're really supposed to do is recognize it as signs that tell us God's in charge. I mean, honestly, God is completely in control. And the more fulfilled prophecy you witness, the more sure you can be that God is completely in control. Jesus controlled the timing of his death. And it's so easy to miss that. But every Easter, I try to share that with people. They didn't want to do this thing where they were going to catch him and kill him during the Passover feast. That was incredibly dangerous for them. 
Because if they caused a riot, they were going to have the Romans breathing down their necks. They were they would get caught up, have their own homes destroyed and everything in a riot. That's the last thing they wanted to do. But when Jesus gets to town during the Passover feast, he tells them at the Last Supper, by the way, he's going to do it. And immediately, right? Um, why did I go blank? Um, you know, Judas, yeah, my brain's going faster than my mouth. Judas immediately gets up and leaves the room. But my mouth's trying to keep up. Quit laughing at me. I'd be hurt if it wasn't true, whatever it is you're laughing about. No, we just love that you acknowledge that. Oh, yeah. Judas gets up and walks out the room as soon as Jesus reveals that he's the betrayer. Why does he do that? Because he's got to run and tell the guys he's on to you. He knows what you're about. And so they have to accelerate the plan because Jesus just let the cat out of the bag. Who's in charge of the timing? It's Jesus. He's planning the whole thing. He's executing the, the, the plan. So, so everything you read in scripture that disturbs you a little bit, just keep in mind, this is also God's way of communicating to you that God's in complete control here. That it doesn't surprise God that we have these people groups that are poised to bring destruction to the whole world at this point in our human history. God's going, yeah, I told you it was coming. <laughs> I told you like 6,000 years ago, you know, I just figured it, you know, eventually you'd get it figured out and you'd you know, not be scared. Isn't that uh, when I, I read before, one commentary said that one of the reasons why when Jesus was out in the wilderness and the devil approached him and told him to throw himself down the cliff or whatever. The reason that Jesus wouldn't do that was because if he would have threw himself down the cliff, he naturally wouldn't have died, and that would have changed the our way we look at his death on the cross mm -hmm. and resurrection. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I won't go off on that, but i just tell you that, that it's very important for us to remember. And when you see these places, the travelers were going to, you're going to really, these are the stories that will make you go, oh, wow, I can never read this the same way again. Because you'll see the places where he was tempted. That hasn't changed. It, and, and when he's out in this wilderness being tempted, we need to realize he's being tempted. That means he thought about it. You understand? I mean, we forget that temptation is the same for him as it is for us. The word temptation says, I'm really thinking about doing something I shouldn't do. Doesn't mean I do it. It just means that. So when, when the, you know, it says that the devil tempted him to do that, that means the devil was saying it to him and he was going, you know, you're right. I really am hungry and thirsty. I could deal. I could make this all go away and feel great. And I, you know, frankly, I'm somewhat unfamiliar with the sensation, sensation being that I was not human until recently. <laughs> I mean, and I'm not trying to be flippant about our Lord, but I'm just saying he was tempted. He, he had a moment where he thought, you know, I could just miraculously take control of everything and I wouldn't have to go through all this other stuff that the Father and I have been planning. He thought about it. Isn't it wonderful that we have that example that's so helpful to us? Yeah. And what we face down here. Yeah. We, we're all tempted and there's no shame in temptation the, the place where you disappoint God and yourself is when you've succumbed to the temptation and you know and yet he still forgives you 
which is amazing. So praise God. Okay, just a little more from the notes here. Um, so we get down there to section three, uh, point number two, Genesis sixteen twelve. It says, he will be a donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over and against his kinsmen. Kinsmen. The word dwell in this case is like that word fell. It's a particular usage of the term in Hebrew. And what it means is his people will be at each other's throats all the time. And if you think about certain people groups in our, country, in our world, and, and you know, it's not exclusively Arab peoples, because I'm thinking, um, I'm going to confess something to you, and it's even getting recorded, but my kids tease me. But you know, given my age, I was born in 1962, so I grew up with the Cold War, and I grew up with a whole lot of World War II veterans for Boy Scout leaders, teachers, things like that. And then when I became an adult, I read like crazy. I worked on a bookmobile for two years, and I had lots of time. You know, when you pull up to a nursing home out in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, it takes them old people a good a half an hour to 45 minutes to get out to that bookmobile. So I got plenty of time to read. <laughs> and I'd sit there in the prairie reading in my bookmobile, and I read and I read and I read. And you know, I have struggled with a bias even a certain prejudice against Japanese people. I've struggled with that. In particular, the, the big city, you know, Tokyo in particular, because even now when I see like TV shows and things that they've dubbed and shown on American TV, and I look at it, oh, those Japs, <laughs> they're nuts. When you go to Israel, if there's a busload of Japanese that unloads at the same time we do, you guys have to hold me back. Because I guarantee you, they're not going to have any bubble around their bodies at all. They're just going to crowd right in with you, and they're going to cut right in front of you. <laughs> yeah, on an elevator. <laughs> and, and, and again, I hope you will understand where I'm going with this. I've had to fight that temptation because I should not just categorize. But when I read the atrocities the Japanese did during the Empire days, when I read like Louis, Gig Louis Giglio, I mean Louis Zamperini's story, when I, when I read uh, from soldiers in the Pacific and stuff like that, I'm telling you, they were some vicious, violent, warlike people. And they're not Arabs. They're not even descendants of Ishmael, as far as I know. But they have a lot in common with these people, because when one person wants to take charge, they don't have an election. <laughs> you know, why, have you ever noticed that, you know, like in the, in the Charlton Heston movies or whatever, you know, like Ben-Hur is my, like one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, kids bought it for me in a gift set with all kinds of special extras, and I sat there for like three days and watched all of that. And, you know, and, and guess what? You know, the Arab guys in that, you know, culture, like, like uh, another fantastic, awesome, amazing movie is Lawrence of Arabia, one of the best movies ever made. And these guys all carry daggers, don't they? You know why they carry daggers? Because somebody else might decide they want to be in charge. <laughs> and you've got to be ready for that. You know, you can have bodyguards with big swords and everything, but your last resort is the dagger you carry on your own hip because you don't want to, go, to be that. Now, that's what we're talking about here. That's the kind of people that are at least being juxtaposed with Yisrael, who is a people who's trying to listen to God. 
And here's where I wanted to go with this last idea, which is Genesis 49. This is when Jacob dies. And upon his death, and there's several verses, so I didn't put it all in my notes, but he blesses each one of his sons. And if you listen carefully to the blessings, he's blessing the people groups that they represent. So the 12 tribes, which, as you know, will eventually become millions of people. He blesses each one of them and kind of says, this is the kind of people group you're going to have. This is the kind of people group you're going to have. And he goes all the way down the line and he opens with, I'm blessing you as one. So he's taken his 12 sons and he's going to give each one of them individual blessings. But he tells them before he blesses them individually, I'm blessing you as one to start with. Meaning you are Israel, and you are Dan and you are, uh, I remember that one son's name for some reason, it just sticks in my memory, but the other ones I have to think about, you know. But, uh, but they are receiving individual blessings, but he opens with a general blessing for the people of Israel, and then he ends with a blessing for the people of Israel. And in the meantime, there is this unstated thing that is as old as rabbinical study and tradition. So here's one I'm going to give you. From, and this one, I promise you, you will witness when we go to the Holy Land. You'd witness this if you went to Indianapolis to a Jewish neighborhood or if you went to any place where more than a few Jews live. It's their dedication to something called the Shema. Have you ever heard of that? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, right? Look it up. Deuteronomy 6, verses 3 and 5. Anybody who gets it, read it. It's called the Shema. Some people say Shema. They say that every morning, right? They say that every door. Every time they go in and out their door. Have you ever seen masuzas on people's doors? If you come to my house, we have one. I bought it on my first trip to Israel. I've decided I need a bigger one now. I'll read it. All right, let's have it. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 3 through 5. Hear therefore, O Israel, I am observed to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And you remember when somebody said, Jesus, which of the commandments is the greatest? And he said, the greatest of these is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself, which I like to do with my hands because it makes a great big L. He says, work on the vertical relationship and then work on the horizontal relationship. And every Jew who is committed even remotely to their ancestry, will probably have a masuza on their door, which is just a long rectangular or tubular sort of decoration. Um, and like I said, I'm gonna buy me a new one when I get over there because the one I has a little tiny thing because that's all I could afford the first trip. And um, it's got a scroll in it with that passage on it. The phylacteries I was describing where they have the leather box on their forehead and, and you know they're very methodical about that. They put that thing on and they pull their prayer shawl over their head and they put the arm thing in each of those leather boxes has a little tiny scripture scroll in it with that passage on it. And 
it's the last word that every Jew hopes to speak with their final breath. When you're on your deathbed, or if you're, the Nazis reported this, they said they heard the Jews in all their various languages saying in Hebrew, you know, even though they were Polish or whatever, they, but when they went to the gas chambers and they realized they were dying, they could hear them all in there saying in Hebrew, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. This is what they would say. And, and so it's certain that that's what Jacob said. And what he's saying is, is we are one nation under one God, Israel. Hear, O Israel, you are one nation under one God. And so you have the juxtaposition of Yishmael and Israel. And what you have is Yishmael being a people group that's always at somebody's throat, each other's. They're always fighting to protect themselves from the next usurper who's probably going to kill them in their sleep. And then you have Israel, who's committed to unity, at least in the biblical narrative, and they're committed to reminding themselves in every conceivable way every day that they are one nation under one God, the people of Israel. Thoughts? How are they knowing that? How is that been ignored? <clears throat> um, explain what you want to know. Well, I mean, you think about with all the division, that just makes it so clear. That's the unity. So that is a chosen place. Yeah. A chosen people. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why God's not done with them. And that's why as, as Christians, if we're really biblically oriented Christians, then we would always support Israel as the biblical definition, you know, so it is going to involve supporting them politically and, and supporting our government's support of Israel. I mean, that's going to happen. But our real mindset as Christians is that we're praying for the people who are as committed to their Judaism as we are to our Christianity. You know, that, that, you know, I am committed to Christ as my king. He is the Lord of lords, the king of kings. He is my king. My life belongs to him. My whole future belongs to Christ. If you meet a Jew who feels as strongly about their relationship with God through the tradition of the Torah, then that's somebody that we have a lot in common with and we need to support him and pray for him or her. And, you know, that we're bound to those people because we are an extension of Israel. You know, we are a culmination of everything the Old Testament says would happen as a result of, but, but the Old Testament and the New Testament make it clear that there will be a certain group of people called Jews who are faithful and loved by God, but they're not going to take Christ until they see him at the final coming. And that's just how it goes. And then you get into the book of Revelation where you read about the 144,000 and that's a fascinating story because, and you'll hear a lot of different versions of this, so this is Pastor Dan's interpretation and there's probably lots of people that share the same interpretation, so I'm not unique in this. But my personal belief is the 144,000 mentioned in, in Revelation, uh, anyway, in Revelation, are 144,000 Jewish evangelists. They're Jewish, they're, so, so the, the raptures happen, the church is gone, they're out of the picture, and these Jews figure out, it's just like they said, this is for real. 
and they become converts on their own just by, by seeking Christ in scripture and committing themselves to Christ because they believe now. And then they go and they evangelize all the Jews of the world. And that's where most of the story of Revelation plays out. After the church is gone and before the judgment comes, there's this drama where the Jews are being saved, where the final conversion of the Jews comes. And those who don't will go the same route as all of the other unconverted. And that's Revelation's explanation of it. So I have five tills, so we're okay for now. What else? So for Jewish people who know the history but don't, don't accept Christ yet, do they think, well, that's okay because I got time? Would it be easier for them to think that? Not necessarily. I don't know. Well, they'd have to live. My first thought when you said that, Julie, was that there's a lot of Christians I know who act the same way. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, they go, well, I, I know all this stuff is probably true, but, you know, I, I got... Could take, I got to take the kid to soccer this afternoon and I got to go home and make supper and you know <laughs> whatever and we're going to we're going to mom's this weekend and I you know it's just it's really easy to put off and you know painfully well right now that things can change and all of a sudden taking the time to really invest in your relationship with your Lord is very important you know and yeah. So and I imagine Jews feel the same way. The only difference is, is that you have to understand most Orthodox Jews, they're whole different. They have a different view of like, like we, we tend to think that when we die, we're going to be in a place Jesus called paradise. We're going to have a lovely time while we're waiting for the business on earth to be fulfilled and completed. But in the Orthodox Jewish tradition, they believe when you die, you just pretty much go to sleep, and that's it until you're resurrected. You know, which, which honestly, I don't mean this, it might sound like I'm being flippant, but in all seriousness, if I can't go to paradise, that'll be all right, you know. Because, I don't know about you, but whenever I've had surgeries, now that I've got a couple under my belt, I can say this, you know, they knock you out, and you're like, out, out. And, and the last thing you remember is take a deep breath. And the next thing you know, they're going, hey, wake up. <laughs> and, and I'm like, all right. I mean, if that's how it is, then, you know, I can see why Jews aren't terribly worried, you know, because it's like, OK, I, you know, I die, I go to sleep. And then one day I'm resurrected physically and, and we're back business here, you know. So so, I mean, they don't feel this like urgency about, well, don't you want to go to heaven when you die? You, so you're not going to sell them on that issue. Um, the, and, and the truth is, this is where I've become a big fan of a guy named Frank Viola, is, is the truth is, is a lot of Christians are screwed up that way too. A lot of Christians are hung up on the whole, I want to go to heaven when I die thing, and so they stop there. And they don't go any further than making sure they get their fire insurance, right? And then they, you know, they could call Julie to get fire insurance, but that's only a guarantee that when you die, you're going to some place Jesus called paradise, which is nice. But you could also go where the Jews think you go and just take a long nap that you don't even remember. But the thing that wins Jews over is when they recognize that he is Yeshua HaMashiach or Christ the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. And what they recognize is, is he has the authority to be the one that they were anticipating. And so it's all about the kingship of Christ. 
And that's where Jews convert to Christianity is when they realize that you've given them all the evidence they need to believe that he is the Lord because that's who they're looking for. They're not looking for a nice guy who's sweet to kids, makes fishes and loaves expand. And, you know, they're not looking for a guy like that. They're not looking for a guy who promises you go to heaven when you die. They're not looking for that. But they are looking for the Messiah. They are looking for the one who is the ultimate ruler that they're anticipating. And the thing that stopped them in the past that still stops them now is that Jesus doesn't fit the bill. He doesn't add up according to their worldly interpretation of their law and their faith. In other words, they're looking at the same scriptures that we are, but, and I don't mean this, like, again, it's not universal. I just found out who our guide's going to be, and it was my first choice, Tippy. She's awesome. She's a very wonderful Jewish person. She's also very knowledgeable about lots of world religions because she's a guide. That's what she does for a living. I'm sure people that go on these trips with her try to convert her all the time. And she's just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, I mean, her father was a big shot in Mossad. Do you think she isn't tough? <laughs> you think she doesn't know how to take, you know, all of these and then politely deflect them? Because you haven't said anything you know, George, isn't it a little bit like sales? Sometimes you got to hit the right button and then all of a sudden they do another lap around that car, you know, and that's not you convincing them that they want something they don't want. That's you finally figuring out what they want. Right. And once you figure out what they want and you zero in on it, then all of a sudden you've got them there. This is what I want to do. Same thing with converting the Jews. They just have to hear what they need to hear. But keep in mind that in Judaism, just like a lot of other religions, including ours, there are tons of people who have it in name, but it's not in their heart. And so you can tell them what they need to hear, even if you know what the magic formula is, and they're still not going to listen. Because they don't know what they don't know. Boy, I talk to people every Sunday morning that are like that. I'm not naming anybody because I don't know for sure, but it's just a numbers game. Every morning when I preach, there are people out there who are hearing me, but they're not internalizing it because they're not there. They're not ready. And so they're entertained or something. Friends, it's 7 o'clock. George, you got a prayer for us? I do. Thank you, brother. Your loving Father, Amen. That's a good one. Um, if you have time.